Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Destiny. Now here's your host, Cliff Dunning. Okay, how are you? I hope you're well. I don't really talk about my background a great deal, other than the fact that I was a conference director for probably about eight years. And here in San Francisco, in the late 80s and into the 90s, it was an epicenter for people of new thinking, new thought. I mean, you got uh, uh, all kinds of uh, LSD. You have all kinds of psychedelics going on. You have research. You have SRI, Stanford Research Institute. You have uh, a lot of things going on in Marin. A lot of fascinating topics were being posed and researched and experienced. And there was a... It was a national conference called Whole Life Expo. And what Whole Life Expo was all about was showcasing new thought authors. And when I say new thought, that can be new age. But within new age, it's also wellness. It is um, plant medicines. In many cases, it's ancient cultures. It's traditional native wisdom. It is spirituality. It's a lot of area covering the topic of new age or new thought. And I was the program director for, let's see, from 1997 to 2001, I think. And in that time, I was uh, gifted with the ability to have a budget large enough to uh, to fly people in from around the world to speak on topics that were very controversial. And that experience is what is the foundation for Earth Ancients, because I've been interested in ancient cultures for years. And that I mean, ancient cultures is, as a young person, it was Atlantis and Mu and other, other places that were not really well known, but described by native traditions. I mean, there's one thing that, 
and we have it occasionally. One thing that is interesting about Earth is that there have been cultures that have come and gone. And we see this when we have people like Raphael Eisman on the show, who's in South America. He runs into whole ruins of people that are not understood. They don't know where they came from. They show up and they go. Now, if they're really, really ancient, it's possible that they came and they lived in their own craft. (laughs) And the Maya talk about this all the time. But my point is that, and that's another topic, one of the topics that Whole Life Expo had, which is ancient civilizations. My, my point is that Earth Ancients and Destiny are real, real sounding boards for a lot of this material that is now coming into its own. And I've always said that I'm about five or seven years ahead of myself with my concepts. I mean, I just wrote this book, Cannabis and Sexual Ecstasy, and it's not selling very well. And then I, I was talking to the publisher the other, the other day, and it's like, well, all of a sudden it's starting to sell. <laughs> because it's kind of ahead of itself in terms of arousal strains, understanding sexuality, uh, and how plant medicine helps on so many different levels. So my point here, what I'm trying to say is that I have had a great deal of experience working with these uh unusual, esoteric, occult, new thought topics, many times meeting with the author, many times having them uh, join me in conferences. And San Francisco was the home base, but we had conferences in New York. We had conferences around the country, Atlanta, Florida, Chicago, Seattle, New Mexico, I mean, at the at the peak, the the show has eight or nine different cities that we did conferences in, and a lot of these people traveled with us. I mean, I we had Timothy Leary. I mean, Tim Leary was great. One of my favorites were uh, Tim uh, was uh, Terrence McKenna. Oh, that guy was a trip thirty years ago, <laughs> a real loss to everybody. And uh, but those guys were fun, and it was great wisdom to be with these people and uh, very inspiring and very enlightening. So I'm, I'm kind of setting the stage for today's program uh, because I have gone back and found some of the early interviews I did. And you'll have to forgive me. My interview techniques are very raw. As a program director, I would introduce people, maybe talk a little bit about who they were and then get off the stage never sat with anybody in, the, in those days that wasn't really the the setting you introduced the speaker and then you got off the stage <laughs> so but uh so uh my, my point is that uh i've had a great deal of interest because i've had these people in on these uh, programs and i am bringing them back and today's topic is remote viewing and remote viewing really has come into play when it was declassified by the military uh, over 20 years ago. And at that time, when the military declassified it, a lot of these guys and gals were out of work. And so there were private institutions that were uh, formed to, to support them. And so anyhow, we're going to, we're going to have this uh, interview with Dr. Uh, Courtney Brown, who formed an institute um, 
this is this interview was about eight years ago, and again, it's I'm anyhow. It's you have to put up with me a little bit on this interview. I interrupt a couple of times, and I, I I was listening to it recently as I was editing this, and I was going, Jesus Christ, guy, let the let the man talk. Uh, it's not really. I mean, you'll be okay. It's not too jarring, but. <laughs> I've improved. I have improved, and I know I've improved. <laughs> so, but I'm going to be um, starting to release more of these very early interviews because I think it's time. I think they're a perfect setting um, for what we're what we're experiencing, how we're evolving, and in some cases, I think uh, there's some people who are that I'm going to have on the program from very early interviews who have spoken to ETs. And that's kind of scary for some people, but these are people that not necessarily had the ETs talking to their heads, which is a form of channeling. These are people that have actually met ETs and actually spoken with them. And then they were, they were talking. Um, Travis Walton is a very well-known experiencer. Um, of course, we've had Whitley Strieber on. And by the way, Whitley Strieber is going to be back on the program early in 2023. He's got a new book coming out. Uh, but, you know, people who are experiencers are very hard to get on the mic simply because it's too hairy for them. But I I, uh, uh, I, I want to start bringing some of these people out that were of, of interest to me 20 years ago and that are ripe for uh, revisiting and uh and so i was uh i was i've always thought you know i mean cuz i quit a very high paying job and this is one of these things you look at your life and go god what the hell were you thinking <laughs> but i i was working for a high tech company here in the bay area and i quit to become the program director for this um, conference. And conferences don't pay anything. But I was so unhappy where I was working. And I'm, if I haven't told you, I was trained as an illustrator. I, I'm a, I, was, I was given a scholarship and I went to art school. <laughs> and, you know, artists don't make any money. So later I got another degree in uh, business marketing and that's was where I was able to work for the high tech companies as a marketing specialist, but I, that got to be crazy. So anyhow, as a program director, I had a lot of interests. I had a long history of reading, and I've always been fascinated by the occult, by the stories. People like Charles Fort, who in the turn of the century, uh, early 1900s, wrote books on really unusual phenomenon. Uh, evidence of lost civilizations and so forth and so on. And then I've always mentioned that my grandfather was also a huge influence on me and, and, and was very worldly about other cultures. This is one of the reasons I like to travel a lot. And and um, and so this influenced me, and this is really where it came to bear uh, when I was the program director. So long story short, uh, this interview that we're going to hear today with Dr. Courtney Brown is kind of hairy in some ways because he gets into remote viewing aliens and what a remote viewer basically is is a psychic he is he or she is highly tuned i mean 
Courtney puts it in very succinctly. He says, you know, there's people that are great uh, violinists. As a young age, they're, you know, on stage playing the violin. Uh, or someone's a great mathematician. Well, there are really talented, gifted psychics. And these are the people that the military uh, used and trained to be remote viewers. And remote viewing, in a nutshell, is uh, you're giving a target, a uh, place, person, or object, or whatever, you're given some information, and you are reaching out through your mind to contact, to see, to experience that, and you're writing down the experience. You're writing, you're drawing pictures of the buildings, you're drawing pictures of the of the aliens, you're writing key words, but most of it is that you're explaining. This is why a lot of these remote viewing sessions are recorded audio uh, on audio and on video. Uh, and in a minute here, we're gonna we're gonna hear a, a definition from a well-known uh, British remote viewer who explains in his own words what remote viewing is. But Courtney Brown, Dr. Brown, is a professor at Emory University in Atlanta, and he was instrumental in developing uh, a institute called Farsight, Farsight Institute. And at the end of this, in the concluding remarks, I'm going to give you some information where you can actually go and you can see and and, uh, experience some of these remote viewing sessions that are recorded. And uh, Farsight is is a nonprofit. And so you can actually, you know, see... Very, very talented remote viewers talking about Atlantis, talking about 9-11, talking about Russia, talking about aliens, and most importantly, and this is what's so funny, and this is sad too, NASA would release data on uh, satellite imagery of of, uh, various moons, uh, planets, and other objects in, in space and give enough data that a remote viewer could pick up on it and actually re- uh, reply or give data on what the satellite was actually looking at. And we'll hear a little bit about that today. You can actually go to YouTube and just punch in Farsight. And it is uh, very well put together. And th- that's where all the videos are. But if you go to their website, farsightinstitute.org, O-R-G, they, I say, eighty percent of their material is is uh, free, and they live on donations. And so, if you start really digging into their archives, it's would be really nice if you could give them a few bucks, because that's how they survive is on funding. So, again, this presentation is one that's very old. It's when I started getting into. Um, I, I want to say 2014, but it, f- it feels like it's a little older than that, uh, younger than that, like 2016. Uh, I, I think it says 2016 on it, but I, I think it was, I, I marked that because I wanted to have it in an archive, but I think it's earlier than that. And um, it's clean. It's well, you know, you can hear everybody talking. Because when I first started doing podcasting, I was using uh, iPhone earbuds and the mic that goes with it. That's how rudimentary things were then. And I wasn't taking it serious enough. And I really have paid for that because um, people want to hear some of this earlier 
this early material. So, so we, before we hear Courtney Brown, I want to play a few minutes of a psychic who is also a remote viewer and hear what he has to say about how he actually discovers a target and what is clarified and what happens during a remote viewing session. So have a quick listen. Remote viewing is a perceptual technique whereby a person can describe places, events, or people that are perceived mentally, but separated from the viewer by distance, shielding, and even time. Mm-hmm. It's, if you like, it's a, a trained intuitive ability, intuitive ability. How is remote viewing used, um, used today? I've been tasked to uh, help locate murderers and to unravel clues that may help towards finding who the murderer may be in a particular case. Uh, within businesses, helping with negotiations, investigations, uh, lost property, uh, insurance scams, uh, missing persons. Yeah. There's, a, there's quite a long list that I've been involved with all of those. And does your work involve um, sitting in a dark room, say in a police station or something, and um, sort of psych- conjuring up the image of, of the crime scene? No, I sit at home with a cup of coffee yeah. at a table, usually cleared of objects that you know, might get in the way. And I just um, focus in on what's called a coordinate, something which is going to help me to find what's called the signal line. And then from then, uh, small images appear, a bit like um, bits of a jigsaw. Mm -hmm. And eventually, we draw up information from that. Some of it's sensory, some of it um, uh, is uh, visual, Mm -hmm. some of it is impressions, uh, emotional impressions, and basically feelings that are around the actual site itself. And eventually we can come up with enough information that will help to solve the problem or tell us what's actually at that particular site. Okay. Can you give me an example of um, a a murder case or or an insurance case where you've sort of conjured something up which um, has has been helpful? Yeah, there was a case in America where a man was found overboard from his boat in suspicious circumstances. I can't really say a great deal about it. Uh, However, there appeared to be no motive for the murder. And I was tasked from America through a con- contractor out there uh, who's also a remote viewer. And uh, I was able to ascertain from the pieces that I could do through remote, through remote viewing that there was a possibility that actually it was an internal affair. Somebody in the family was actually involved in some way or could be involved in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, this information was sent back and I gave my reasons for this. And I was eventually told that uh, nothing more about what had actually happened with the case apart from someone within the family had, had actually been arrested for the murder. How did the American military uh, use remote viewing? In the military, it was used for about 18 years uh, within the, the actual Cold War between Russia and, and the West, if you like, East and the West. And um, mainly to sort of locate intelligence things like silos uh, for missiles, uh, secret sites and things like this, mm-hmm. but stuff where um, no other means could actually be used to get into the site to find out what's there. It was only uh, with the event of the, the Cold War that we discovered that the Russia actually was operating some people who were able to locate information, particularly in the United States. And um, when America found out about it, they thought this actually was quite a good idea. This is a very short view, a very short part of the story, but it sort of brings the, the basic facts together. And from that, um, the CIA became involved and funded um, a military unit. 
and also some experiments carried out in America by a chap called Hal Putoff. And he worked in, in conjunction with a chap called Ingo Swan, who was a very gifted remote viewer who set up the, uh, the means to train remote viewers at a place called Fort Meade. Uh, during a period of 18 to 20 years, there were about 23 remote viewers. And uh, it was eventually uh, disbanded by, uh, well, by, basically by the government uh, when the CIA started to reveal uh, information about remote viewing and what they've been up to uh, in conjunction with Bill Clinton's um, new disclosure uh, act through Congress that disclosure of information had to be uh, information had to be more freely available to the, the public. Okay, so there you go. That's that's uh, uh, from an actual practitioner. By the way, I want to mention this. You can actually learn to ha- uh, to remote view. Uh, Courtney has um, classes that you can take online and learn how to be remote, uh, how to remote view. Apparently, we all possess the uh, different levels of psychic ability, and that's kind of the foundation: having premonition, having a sense of things. You know, whatever your understanding of being a psychic is. He can help develop that, and you can just, uh, start working with remote viewing. So that's something to consider. So today's program is Remote Viewing Earth's Ancient Past. And we got some sprinkling of UFO, alien, other uh, strange phenomenon that's also covered. With our guest, Dr. Courtney Brown. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
remote viewing is the subject for today. I um, have been aware of it for a few years. About 20 years ago, I had heard about it and had a, a an individual who had experienced it. There's a number of of uh, well, I should say that one time there was a number of uh, uh, individuals who were teaching remote viewing. Some had come out of the military. Some had been trained by individuals who had worked for organizations that were doing remote viewing. But uh, my guest today is Dr. Courtney Brown, and he has developed uh, what I think is a fascinating program and has done some just just some uh, amazing research on the past, the present, and, and uh, probably the future. Courtney Brown is a mathematician and a social scientist who teaches in the Department of Political Science at Emory University in Atlanta. He uh, is an independent at the at the university. Also, he's a leading scholar on the subject of remote viewing, as it is done using procedures that were developed by the United States military, uh, which was used for espionage purposes or procedures that were derivative of those uh, techniques. His organization is called Farsight, and he is director and founder of Farsight Institute, a nonprofit research and educational organization dedicated to the study of a phenomenon of non-local consciousness known as remote viewing. He has a book called The Science and Theory of Non-Physical Perception, and apparently it's the only book of its kind where the science of remote viewing is developed with respect to highly structured data collection methodologies of the kind utilized by the United States military. So this is going to be very interesting. Welcome to the program, Courtney. How are you today? Cliff, I'm fine, and I want to thank you so much for inviting me on. Well, glad you could join us. Tell us um, a little bit about your interest and why uh, an academic like yourself would would pick it up and, and want to take it to the level that you have. What was your your interest in remote viewing? Well, it's important to understand that I do not do any remote viewing research at my university. I do everything independent of the university. At the university, I only teach statistics, nonlinear differential equations, and things like that in a social science program. Uh, all the work I do in remote viewing is done at the Farsight Institute. And uh, best best way to know that is uh, www.farsight, F-A-R-S-I-G-H-T, like seeing far, dot org, O-R-G, because we're a nonprofit. And the... The the work that I do at the Farsight Institute really started in the 1990s when the official military program in remote viewing was declassified and released and then closed down in November of 1995. But everyone that I respect uh, understands that the program started up again right away and is even much bigger now than it was back in those days. And that if that ever becomes public, they'll close that one down and say, gosh, I don't know, how did that happen? It must have been a rogue general. <laughs> and, then, and then they'll start it up They'll start it up again. So remote viewing is a very important phenomenon for U.S. military intelligence, although it's not, it's not spoken about publicly. The idea that 
we do things in the military that I'm not in the military, but the idea that the military does things and doesn't speak about them publicly should be commonsensical to everyone. The U.S. military budget is the well, the U.S. military budget is larger than all military budgets of every country on the planet Earth combined. I Meaning, if you took everybody else's military budget and added them all together, the U.S. military budget is bigger than all of that. And mm-hmm. the largest chunk of all of our military spending is in black. Meaning, there's no there's no line item anything for it. Uh, no one knows what it's spent for. So we we very commonly have lots of programs that are off the books and not under civilian supervision. So oversight, congressional oversight, things like that. So that's normal. So one should not be surprised that such stuff is going on. Now, there was a, another movement, not a program, but another movement within the military going on at the same time that the official program was housed in the Defense Intelligence Agency. And that movement came out of Special Forces and later became known as the 1st Earth Battalion. And that was featured in the movie The Men Who Stare at Goats, starring Jeff Bridges and George Clooney. So there were two, there were, that, both of them were, both the movement and the official program were housed in the U.S. Army in the intelligence area. But nonetheless, it was a separate type of thing. And the people that I work with, I normally do not do the remote viewing for the projects that we do at the Foresight Institute. I'm normally the chief investigator, and the remote viewers that I work with are literally the very best remote viewers on the planet Earth. People like Dick Elgar who uses the Hawaii Remote Viewers Guild methods, and that's or the HRVG methods, that was taught to him by Glenn Wheaton, and he Glenn came out of Special Forces Intelligence, the first okay. battalion thing. And then I work also with people like Daz Smith, who does controlled remote viewing, or CRV, and that is a method that came out of the official program in the Defense Intelligence Agency. But these people are the very best, and they can do things that a lot of people call scary good, uh, on a very regular basis, meaning they, we do projects, and their, you know, their participation in the projects is mm-hmm. unbelievably accurate and detailed with regard to perceiving across time and space under absolutely totally blind conditions. Meaning the only thing okay. they're given is an email from me saying there is a target, remote view it. That's it. Okay. They're not, they're not told, like, I want you to remote view the Eiffel Tower. That's, that's impossible to do because remote viewing <laughs> has to be done independent of the conscious mind because right. your imagination and memory would kick in, what you saw on postcards would kick in, mm-hmm. and that would produce junk as data. So it's got to be pure, nonlinear, non-local perception. Okay. So you can't know anything about it. That's how Why don't you tell... Works. Why don't you tell the audience, uh, describe what remote viewing is and how it actually works. Well, remote viewing is a form of perception, and it is done in the normal waking state of consciousness. So what was the drug you were talking about before I got on? Ayahuasca? Ayahuasca, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so that is um, both similar and different in the sense that with anawaska or a psychotropic drug, one has legitimate experiences, but they're uncontrolled. 
meaning you're not you're not in control. The drug has induced that state. And remote viewing is a similar type of thing, but it's done in the total waking state of consciousness without any drug use at all. And so it's very hard to do. Uh, that's why so many people like Graham Hancock like to use things like ayahuasca because it's, it's relatively easy to do. You just take it and you have those experiences. But with remote viewing, you have to actually train the mind to perceive across time and space to be able to see these parallel realities, uh, alternate locations, uh, everything that you can possibly imagine. It's a natural experience, but our, our physiology is such that it inhibits that. Our brains are essentially extremely complex hologram generators. And what they do is they perceive frequencies. Now, in the universe that exists today, no physicist has ever, ever, and all of time has, has ever found anything solid. You say, well, I look at my computer, my radio, my car, my body, it's solid. And I say, no, that's just empty space and molecules. And inside the molecules is empty space and atoms. And inside the atoms is empty space and protons and neutrons and electrons. And inside those and down the rabbit hole it goes. No physicist has ever, ever found anything solid anywhere in the universe. The only thing they ever find is frequencies, energy, that forms in combination things that they like to call wave packets. And those wave packets, they emerge in a perceptual state that we see as solid things. And so basically what we're doing is our brains only have access to frequencies. There is no solid thing. So the frequencies that it, inter that it actually perceives, it has to combine in a way that's very similar to how a television set works or a radio, where it screens out all other frequencies except the ones that it wants you to focus on and assembles a picture. And that picture is incredibly realistic. It's so convincing that people assume it's actually real and there is only a, one reality. So what that anawaska does is, is it inhibits the brain to be able to do its job as a limiter of perception. What remote viewing does is train the conscious mind to be able to have those alternate perceptions that are normally screened out perceived anyway in the absence of drugs. In fact, with remote viewing, we strongly recommend uh, absolutely no psychotropic involvement at all. Uh, and I don't even drink tea and coffee because you need to keep the nervous system as pristine as possible. Now, people, other people, other remote viewers don't necessarily go along with this. They drink wine and beer and things like that. But in its purest state, you are basically doing the same type of thing as what you're talking about with the Anahuasca thing, except you're approaching it from a different perspective. So you're, okay. you're, you're approaching it from perspective of training the brain to allow in those perceptions that you're otherwise screening out. But again, that's why Anahuasca works. You are essentially putting the brain in a straitjacket so it can't do the job it was supposed to do. So then those perceptions come across. With remote viewing, it's different. You're actually in a completely undrug-induced state. You're in a normal waking state of consciousness, literally working with the brain to train it to allow in perceptions that it otherwise would not allow in, and okay. then to focus, to focus on those things. So in a physical sense, how does it work? You physically go into a room, 
excuse me, you go into a room with a, in the traditional military days, you'd go into a room with a paper, with a pack, a stack of paper and a pen on a desk. The only thing you'd be told is they're a target. And an hour later, you'd come out with 20 pages of detailed data describing that target. Now, the level, the quality, in my opinion, of the remote viewing that we do now is far better than the best that was achieved back in the old remote viewing days. And the quality of the remote viewing that will be done in 20 years from now by other people, not us, will be far better than what we do today at the Farsight how, Institute. How, how can and, you say that, so Courtney? How, how do you, how do you say we, that? What, is it the techniques because, that you're developing? No, it's not necessarily techniques. It's it's the refinement of how it of the of the practice itself. So it's a combination mm-hmm. of the techniques, how to use the procedures. People mm-hmm. get better at things over time. If you look at music, for example, and you go back, I'm a drummer, for example. So if you uh, if you look back at drummers like Gene Krupa, he was really good back in the old days of Roaring Twenties and so on like that, World War II stuff. Uh, Gene Krupa was great. He did a lot of movies. I really liked Gene Krupa. Uh, and then Buddy Rich came along. And Buddy Rich just did things that nobody ever thought was possible. Buddy Rich could not have existed had Gene Krupa not existed first. So mm-hmm. okay. it's just a natural evolution of things. For example, if you look at the piano, how can you have a Lang Lang who performs, you know, stuff that seems physically impossible to move your fingers that fast without previously having a Mozart. So, I mean, without how can you have a Lang Lang without previously doing other things? And so there's always continual improvement in things. Like, look at the Olympics. Every Olympics are breaking records. Well, how can it possibly be that they're still breaking records? What will be the limit to this? We don't know. There's no such thing as a limit. People will just keep on getting better at things. And so okay. we're, we're better now than the way the military people were traditionally, a lot better. And the people that succeed us in other organizations later on, other places, they'll be a lot better than us. And then 100 years from now, there'll be people that are way better than them. And we're, we're moving in the direction of the use of technology also, where eventually you'll be able to put like a skull cap on your head. And the visual images that people are getting, as well as the hearing, touch, of course, the sight, taste, and smell, that'll all be sort of shown on the computer screen in uh, in a way that you might say is very similar to the way it was done with Minority Minority Report, that movie with Tom Cruise. Oh, yeah. Very good. Well, let me ask you, you must have had some unique criteria to select the individuals for the uh, Farsight Institute. Did you... Do uh, uh, I mean, <laughs> obviously, you have to get not only just references, but you must have tested this this core group of individuals that you've been working with. Not really. What we've done is we've worked with people who are trained in the military or military derived methodologies in public projects. And then certain people just turn out to be really good, much better than than others. And then with our more recent projects, we decided to stop working with large numbers of viewers, but rather to work with the very best in specialized projects. And the difference is night and day when you see the quality of the data, because almost anybody after a bit of training can produce evidence that they were that they were connected to the target in some way. 
they'll have some lines, some sketches, some perceptions that are clearly target-related. That's the thing that they were supposed to perceive under blind conditions. But when you get to the point where someone describes in stunning detail as if, in fact, better than if they were there with their own and saw everything with their own eyes. I say better than because they're not only seeing things really clearly and describing them, but they're also being able to move around in time and space. They can go through walls, see the buildings, what's in the buildings, and so on. There's telepathic communication. So they have access to things that are way beyond uh, sort, of the, sort of the average person. And it is a lot like playing the piano in terms of Lang Lang, for example. Anybody can go, I mean, I have a keyboard here in my studio, and I can play the piano. Well, I can make noise. I can make noise on the piano. I push the keys, and yeah. the noise comes out. But if I wanted to be on the level of Lang Lang, if it was even possible, we're talking 10, 20 years of constant daily practice, 10, 12 hours a day, uh, to be able to play in Carnegie Hall. I mean, the point is that some people are just extremely dedicated to their art, to their craft. And those are the people we, we end up working with, not because we tested them, but because we have simply worked with them for so long, it's just obvious, you know, who the better the best are. And so okay. what we really want to do is to show those people as shining examples of what can be done so that they can be an inspiration for other people. If people want okay. to learn how to play the piano, you don't let them listen to me playing chopsticks. You let them listen to Lang Lang. And then they say, oh, so that's what it's all about. Now I understand. And so, you know, that's, that's how you do it. And, you know, okay. always there's going to be people that are pushing the edges. And you just have to be able to keep your eyes out for people who are pushing the edges. For example, when Franz Liszt came about, the great composer of mm -hmm. the last century, when he came out, he wanted to do things that was, he was, first of all, he was a virtuoso pianist. He played the piano. And Franz Liszt was, was well, he was inhibited by playing music that came out of the, and of course you're talking the 1800s now, but he, w he was inhibited by playing music that came out of the classical period and the classical school, which was the, the Mozart, Beethoven, uh, Bach era, that, that, that whole thing that came out of Vienna. And he could play better. He could put his fingers on the piano and do more things. So he simply stopped doing concerts with that stuff, and he started to write his own stuff. And that's where we get things like the Hungarian Rhapsodies, because he wanted to be able to play music that could challenge him and show people what he could do. So he, right. he was the one who invented the idea of there's no such thing as too many notes. <laughs> he just, too many <laughs> notes. Uh, I mean, right. he just is, and one of the reasons, friends, that's one of the reasons Lang Lang is such a great pianist. He can play at the level of, of Franz Liszt, meaning you, you can't even see his fingers move across the, 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 the piano. It's just going so fast. And so that's what basically what happens with remote viewing. We wait and work until people get really good. Now, and under no circumstance should anyone think that I'm saying anything disparaging about, about um, previous remote viewers, even though the current day remote viewers are, are better. That's like saying, 
well, Mozart was a jerk because Lang Lang is a better pianist. I mean, that's stupid. Yeah. Mozart was Mozart. He was, he was one of the greatest right. composers and pianists of all time. So, right. you know, that doesn't diminish the fact that Lang Lang can play unbelievably doesn't diminish anybody in the past. But it's just a mm -hmm. natural course of history that people get okay. better with things over time. Let's let's talk about your your institute. Now, uh, you have this wonderful website, farsight.org, filled with uh, a number of projects uh, that you have listed here. Before we get into some of these projects, and, and I, there's just no way to list them all. I'm just going to pick a few uh, in the time that we have today. Why don't you tell us what you're hoping people derive from these these remote viewings are you are you presenting them with another perspective of reality are you presenting them with just another way to look at a, a subject matter what 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 is the core uh, definition of your work and what are you hoping people derive and get out of this actually cliff that's a brilliant question and you hit the million dollar button the idea is not to show just the results of these projects, uh, from our science projects to our exploration projects. The idea, the bottom line, the real reason why we do what we do, is to demonstrate to people that we are more than our physical bodies, that we live in a greater reality, and that when we exist here as physical human beings, it's a a vague shadow of a larger existence that we came from before we were born and that we go back to after we were born. Obviously, we're not using the physical body when we remote view because you're going through time and space to perceive things that you have no physical access to. So obviously, when the physical body drops off, you're still there. Otherwise, whatever was there, wouldn't you wouldn't have been able to do the remote viewing in the first place. So our particular genetics is structured such that all of that other stuff gets screened out. The telepathy gets screened out. The remote perception normally gets screened out. You don't see the gazelle that was there yesterday when you're out in the outback, or nor do you see the elephant that was there tomorrow. You only see the lion that's in front of you today. And that's what the brain is supposed to do. That's its job. But once you see the larger reality, then you have a completely different perspective on who you are. Now, that's one of the real reasons why it's been so difficult for humanity to come to grips with the extraterrestrial presence, the UFOs, the aliens. The reason is it, disrupt, it disrupts the fantasy, that the mental fantasy, the idea fantasy that we have developed over the ages, that we are the center of the universe, that God created us in his image, and that we were given the entire universe just for ourselves to play with, and the entire other everything, the galaxies and everything, we're just, are dots in the sky for us to just look at because we're everything and all there is. So for us to get out of that, to mature as a species with the destiny, the key, the bridge is remote viewing because that's what tells us that we are different from just what we think we are, that there is that larger reality. Now, extraterrestrials, of course, are completely fluent with all of this. And that's why it's so difficult for them to interact with us one-on-one, -on -one because when we interact with them, it's a shock to our system. It just doesn't, com it's not, doesn't com it's not compatible with our thinking. So the role of Farsight is to bridge that gap 
In part, we do science projects that explain that explore the nature of sci- of uh, time and physical reality, and that such as our multiple universes project, uh, the data for which and the experiment was published in a leading peer-reviewed journal, and that's also available on our website. But we also do exploration, such as the most recent project, Aliens on Iapetus, which is an alien facility that was built in the distant past. We have a nice, clear picture of it supplied by NASA at the Cassini Space Probe, and we found out what it was used for and who was there and how they died. Very interesting okay. story. Okay. Uh, remote viewing. And, and so we do, we do projects like that to sort of interest people in this stuff. And as they become more interested in it, they learn more about themselves. And that's sort of the, that's sort of the key. So the takeaway you're saying is that as they are viewing your data in the form of videos or an audio presentation, you're hoping that they will see that this is something that they are also have in their uh, physicality and their dimensionality as a, as a human being, and that this is something that uh, they just need to be more aware of. Is that what you're saying? They, they, they should be aware of their multidimensionality? Cliff, yes, you said it exactly right. Now, now, I I, I want to say that when you said how we present the information, in the old days, the military still does, but in the old days, uh, we also used to do it the way the military did, which they do it on paper and pen. Mm -hmm. Now, that that is more dreadfully boring to watch than the grass growing. The grass growing is a... Is 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 like watching a science fiction Star Wars movie compared to that. I mean, it's just boring to watch people draw on a piece of paper. So what we did, and then you have to convince people that the things that are being drawn are look like the target. I mean, the thing that they were supposed to perceive. I mean, it's and then it's just not. No matter how good they are, you got to force people to sit down and force them to look at pieces of paper that are dreadfully boring to watch. It just doesn't work. So what we decided to do, this was pioneered originally by Dick Algar, who um, was a celebrity newscaster. He was the face of the news on Hawaii for 30 years. And he was more used to being in front of a camera than off camera. So he said, well, why don't we do this standing up on whiteboard? And I said, "Uh, I don't think that's a good idea. Let's do it the normal way. And he said, no, I'm going to try it anyway. I said, "Okay, give it a try. So he tried it and it turned out to be great. And so we Uh put that session down under totally blind conditions in our Atlantis project. And that's interesting to you because you're Earth ancients. So and that's available for that's available for free on our website. It's uh, put up on YouTube. And so that was an that was anomaly on the bottom of the ocean, three miles deep, 1000 miles west of Portugal and Morocco, plus some Mm -hmm. uh, a similar anomaly or set of anomalies down near Antarctica on, on the bottom of the ocean. And the well, let's, talk Let's talk about yeah, that. Let's talk about that. So I, the remote, yeah, this, go ahead. No, go ahead. So, so <clears throat> we have, uh, that, I want to start with, uh, with Atlantis because, um, what you chose, uh, as targets are quite unique areas. You chose a, a location off of Spain in the, in the Atlantic ocean on the f- bottom floor. And then you chose another target. I think it was off of, uh, Iceland, uh, and and the, f- oh, on the off of Antarctica, off of Antarctica. Oh, Antarctica. Excuse me, Antarctica on the on the uh, floor of the bo- uh, of the ocean, 
and uh, they both have very unique patterns. Uh, these images that are seen in Google Earth. Um, so why don't you tell us what you discovered without giving away everything? But I mean, it's quite unique because the video describes uh, a very advanced civilization. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I don't mind giving away this. We want people to see it. I mean, it's available for free. If they <laughs> go to our website, yeah. If, if we go to, yeah. if we go to our website at farsight.org, uh, either on the uh, either on the nav navigation bar on the left, or just scroll down, you'll see a big banner saying Atlantis. Uh, you know, just click on it and watch it. And the, the what it basically is, it's, it was our first project where we did live remote viewing. And that is where the viewer is under totally blind condition, is standing up in front of a whiteboard and describing it. Now, that, wasn't, that turned out to be not boring. That turned out to be incredibly hair-raising because you're actually watching it happening. He's not recounting what he perceived and said, this is what I saw. You're actually watching it live. And so all of our projects from then on, Atlantis was the first one that did it. And then we did the Great Pyramid of Giza the 9-11 events, Cydonia Mars, aliens on Iapetus. Now, all, the only thing we do is video projects where everything is recorded live uh, on video. So that, and that was a game changer. That was the game changer because you can't watch our recent projects without literally wondering if you're going to fall off your seat. I mean, they're so riveting. It, it takes right. the paper and pen stuff and moves it aside. Now, what the Atlantis thing was, is before we started this Atlantis project on Google Earth, I saw these this anomaly on the bottom of the ocean in Atlantic right. Ocean and then also down near Antarctica. And so I was saying, well, am I going to be able to, I wonder if, you know, because um, there were some mainstream scientists who were saying that those things are the result of ship tracks. Now, ship tracks are, those images are actually gotten from sonar data that's paid for by the U.S. government. And the sonar data produces what they call ship tracks unless the ships travel in overlapping strips back and forth covering a large swath of area. Because what happens is the sonar right below the ship is really clear. And then on either side of that, it's fuzzy. So it looks like two railroad line, two railroad tracks with everything clear in the middle and everything fuzzy on the side if the ship just goes off in the, you know, in a, in a direction. But if it's overlapping back and forth stuff, then the clear comes in perfectly. You know, it, it, it the overlapping back and forth makes everything clear. So uh, they were saying that those were ship tracks. And I looked at them and I said, those aren't ship tracks. Ship tracks have two parallel, perfectly parallel lines on either side with clear imagery in the middle and fuzzy stuff on the outside. And those look like things that were buried in, with silt. It looks like there was ruins on the bottom of the ocean that were, they didn't look at all like ship tracks. I know what ship tracks look like as far as I was concerned. So now this part I'm going to say you, is hearsay because it's true, but I can't prove it. In a, in a court of law, they'd call it hearsay because I can't bring the people in who, who, who said it originally. But I had access to, we work with military people, so I had access to uh, someone in, in, who had a security clearance, uh, high-level security clearance, military security clearance, who was able to go and talk to the actual technicians that had the original data. Mm. Do, you, do you understand, Cliff? 
Yeah. So I asked as a favor if that person would go in and talk to the the actual technicians. I'm not talking about professors or PhDs. I'm talking about the guys behind the computer console who had the actual data. And I said, would you mind just going in there talking to them? Tell them about the ship track story and just tell them what is what the blankety blank is that. <laughs> and the person came back and what I was told is that when the person relayed the ship track idea, they laughed and they brought up the original data and said, those aren't ship tracks. Those are real elevation data. If, if you had ship tracks that were wavy and looked like that, the, the companies that were hired by the U.S. government to produce those images would have been fired. I mean, the, the ship tracks don't look like that. And so they said, those are real elevation data. They laughed at the ship track idea. And so I said, okay, now that's hearsay as far as you're concerned, because I can't bring those people up to a George. If, if I told that to a judge, the judge would say, well, that's just hearsay. You have to, who was the person that you sent that did this? Bring that and put that person on the witness stand and let me cross-examine that person. That's what would happen. So since we can't do that, it's called hearsay, and it would be thrown out in a court of law. So I just okay. give it to you for what it is, meaning it's part of the history of why I pursued the Atlanta story, because I got that feedback. So I said, okay, I've got feedback that I personally trust. I, I trust my eyes. I know that those are not ship tracks from what I know of ship tracks. And so I'm said that that's good enough for me to do a remote viewing project on that. And we had the two remote viewers, uh, Deborah Duggan Takagi and Dick Algar, both of work, both of you of who were using the HRVG or Hawaii Remote Viewers Guild Procedures, uh, do the, that project under totally blind conditions. And Dick's session, Dick did a session uh, that was on video, which was, that was the, that was the thing when he did that. I was so grateful he did that because I was able to see, you know, people can tell you they have a good idea, but you never really believe it or understand it until you see it. And so yeah. once they, once I saw it, I said, Oh, wow, that changes everything. That's yeah. Crazy. It is anyway, very so, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, what it turned out that while we were finishing up the, um, the remote viewing, it took months to finish the remote viewing for this under totally blind conditions. They were never told anything. They got everything. They got it was underwater, that it was ruins, an ancient city, an ancient civilization, and what happened to it. The actual society was about 100 years more advanced technologically than we are today. So they're pretty close to where we are today, but a little more advanced. And they destroyed themselves. And I'll tell you what happened a little later. Can, can you ask, can you just, before we go into it too far, can you give us an approximate date? Did, can they, can they 70, give a 70,000, 70,000 years ago is when it went down. It went up and it happened 70,000 years ago. And the reason it okay. went, and the reason we know that is that the place that they, that they used where they destroyed themselves was down near New Zealand. And you have to understand that the earth, is really not a very good planet to live on. It's really a planet of last resort. There must be a reason why we're here, because things must have been really bad elsewhere for us to get here. So mm -hmm. Earth is really a bad planet, because what it is, it's an 8,000-mile ball of liquid molten rock, we're, and it has an 8-mile thin crust on it. That means we're living on a balloon, on the surface of a balloon. And... For two, three, four, six, ten thousand years, it's fine. There's no problem. But if you go like twenty thousand years out, eventually the sun will burp, 
a coronal mass ejection will come in our direction. The liquid below us will quiver, and then the crust will crack. And what happens is there's a lot of evidence, archaeological evidence, that human society has actually raised itself a number of times and then been totally, you know, knocked down to smithereens. Yeah. But this, this, and, and that, for example, was been documented by a Boston University professor, for example, Robert Schock, S-C-H-O-C-H, who wrote a very interesting book um, called Forgotten Civilizations. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, there's a very, there's a lot of evidence that, in fact, we have risen before and that something happens. Well, the fact is we live on a balloon and there is a natural processes, especially when the sun burps in our direction, where the crust of the balloon gets all messed up and, you know, there's only a few survivors and we build back again. But yeah. what happened during the Atlantis time period, and we know that was 70,000 years ago, is that they were actually trying to drill through the crust. Now, this is not like a volcano, so that there's like a little crack and a little lava and a little steam happens and boom, there's a pop. This was like the channel or Lincoln Tunnel and Holland Tunnel and everything all combined. They were drilling huge boreholes straight through the crust down in the New Zealand area in an attempt to get at the heat below. And they thought they could control it. And what happened was, <clears throat> and it's all documented in the documentary, which is free and you can watch it today. Uh, <laughs> what happened is, they, is that they popped the balloon. Now, that area down in um, down near New Zealand, uh, that has the thinnest crust on the planet and the largest concentration of lava rock on the planet. And the mainstream science, uh, what they do is they call that the Toba catastrophe theory for Lake Toba. They assume it was something like uh, the volcano at Lake Toba in Indonesia. They got the general area correct, but they not exactly correct, but it's in that same area of the globe. But the exact spot was down near New Zealand, which isn't too far away from Indonesia. And what happened was it was not the volcano at Toba. It was boreholes that were drilled right through the earth. They popped it. There was an explosion that was way bigger than any number of hydrogen bombs that you can imagine blowing up. It was huge. You could have seen it from Mars. I mean, it was huge, a huge blowout. And what happened is when you blow out one spot of a balloon, you get a dent in exactly the opposite side. And that opposite side of the balloon is called the antipode. Antipode, P-O-D-E, antipode. So the antipode is the opposite side of where the blowout occurred. And that antipode is exactly, not approximately, not in the general area, but exactly where the anomaly on the bottom of the ocean is three miles deep, 1,000 miles west of Portugal and Morocco, which means that 70,000 years ago, and we know the dating because it's not dispute, that event happened 70,000 years ago. That is not dispute in mainstream science, that explosion. And what happens is there was a dent then, and the dent was that area of Europe that extended 1,000 miles west of Portugal sunk and ended up three miles deep. So that's how we know it was 70,000 miles, because of the 
the nature of the explosion and the fact that the anomaly is the antipode of where the explosion happened, and they have a solid understanding of when that explosion occurred. They call it Toba okay. catastrophe theory, but, you know. Okay. We're going to take a short commercial break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Courtney Brown talking on remote viewing. We'll be back with you shortly. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My guest today is Dr. Courtney Brown. He is the president of Farsight Institute, and it is a teaching institute as well as an information institute on remote viewing. And uh, we're getting a sense of just what the possibilities are using this psychic technique. Tell us a little bit about, uh, and then we're going to move on to the next uh, subject. And and by the way, people that are listening, you can see this uh, great video on uh, farsight.org it's it's actually the atlantis the true story is the title of the uh, of the video tell us um courtney a little bit about what your um remote viewers picked up in terms of the consciousness of these people were they similar to us were they highly evolved were they less evolved consciously uh, obviously if they're about 100 years in advance technologically to us, uh, they had a active science in place. But what about consciousness? They were pretty much like us. They had uh, more advances in genetic engineering. They they were about 100 years more advanced than us. I mean, they had flat panel TV, they had flat panel computer screens uh, that were big, very similar to the way we looked. Their technology rooms were very, you'd be very comfortable with them. And so the, you know, if you walked into one of their military industrial type of facilities, you would, you would immediately recognize it as a military industrial facility. Their architecture was very similar to New York architecture, especially New York or Chicago architecture, especially around the 1950s, 60s. The cities seemed to have, it was like Grand Central Station or Penn Station, that type of architecture with arches and stone buildings and things like that. And the the facility down near Antarctica was a different architecture. There, it was very similar to squared off uh, uh, skyscrapers of sort of a the glass box type skyscrapers that we often see. So it was a different. It was a a look and feel that was more oh sort of modern architecture that came about in the 1970s, 80s, the square, the the glass box type architecture. And a lot of that Antarctica type of stuff 
was underground also. So they had buildings that were above ground and buildings that were below ground and a lot okay. of that. By the way, that that does tell you exactly why the government has so many Antarctica digs going on despite the very harsh climatic conditions. They're not spending all that money and sending all those people down there to look for mastodon bones. They're looking for tech. There's stuff, lots of it buried underneath the ice. And really? it's very hard to get it because, yeah, the, it's very harsh conditions. But they're they're digging up tech, you know, tech that we can understand. You know, when you're dealing with extraterrestrial tech, that type of technology sometimes is hard for us to reverse engineer. A lot of it is, takes a long time and so on. But Atlantis tech is very similar to ours, more advanced than ours, but very similar. And the, the learning curve between them and us is pretty clear. So, yeah, but you, know, you, it's, actually, it's you, also, you also say that in, in your tape, and, and this is what Casey talks about, Edgar Casey, is that a lot of their technology is based on piezoelectric energy, which is crystal energy, or piezoelectric, yes, excuse me. Yes, the remote viewers clearly perceived energy reactors that were based on crystalline, and they were very clean, extremely clean. They were so clean and so good, those reactors, it makes me wonder why the blankety-blank were they drilling through the crust to try to get to the core in the first place. Yeah. But, you know, human human folly has no limits sometimes. Mm -hmm. But they were very like us. And they also had a lot of spiritual stuff that was going on. They they really did sort of dive into the spiritual element as well. But the the project that was the, the bore through the core, bore through the crust project, that was a secret project. And... When it started to go belly up, they saw the beginnings of it happen, and they actually had uh, two or three days before it actually finished. Maybe a day or so, but it was there was some time. It wasn't like an immediate boom. And because what we actually watched with three remote viewers, they were actually they we watched the technicians glued to their screen, seeing it unravel. There were announcements made all over the planet loudspeaker type announcement people were assembling outside where people were told what was going to happen they they were given like advance warning not like a week or two weeks but like a day or so and then an attempt was made to try to save as many people as possible they knew that it was a extinction level event potentially mm. and an attempt was made to save so they put they were getting people onto boats the only men that were allowed on the boats were the ones that had to use, were 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 um, were were uh, able to uh, you know that were needed in order to sail the boats. Otherwise, it was women who were of childbearing age, fecund women, women who were capable of having children or had children. Those were the ones who were being led onto the boats. Now, what I'm going to say now is not really in dispute. It's called. You can find it in Wikipedia under Toba Catastrophe Theory, but this part is not in dispute. 70,000 years ago when this thing happened, everybody on the entire planet was killed off except for around, this is an average, approximately 3,000 pairs of surviving humans. Now, what we mean by a pair, it could be anywhere from 2,000 to 10,000, but around 3,000 pairs of people. Now, a pair is two people. And there might have been more people that survived, but they weren't having babies. So those pairs, the pairs that survived, like the 6,000 people or 3,000 pairs, they were having babies. 
So absolutely everybody on the planet today, whether you're Aborigine, African, Caucasian, European, Hispanic, Asian, no matter who you are, where you came from, we are all related to the same 3,000 pairs of surviving people from the event of 70,000 years ago. Mm. Wow. And again, a lot, a lot of this is not, what I just told you now is, is not dispute. It, it's, it's actually was discovered by the geneticists, the people who study the genetics of people, and they've traced it back to 3,000 pairs of people who were having babies 70,000 years ago. It's, uh, it's part of the juggernaut element or theory of the Toba catastrophe theory because something happened 70,000 years ago with that volcanic event and that killed off everybody and very few people survived. So we have 7 billion people now that are all <clears throat> resulting from, say, 6,000. Fascinating. Would you yeah. say our government has an idea about an Atlantis or a oh, The government knows all of this stuff. This government, the government knows all of this stuff. I mean, in fact, in the middle of the, uh, near the end of the remote viewing phase of this, the Google Earth came out with Google Earth 2.0, which essentially erased almost all of the anomaly on the Atlantic Ocean. And, why? Why, uh, why would they care to do that? I mean, is it, why is well, it such what, a... what happened was, yeah, yeah. you have to Tell understand that all, Google, all underwater Google Earth imagery is government because it all was taken by government-funded sonar data. So they right. can do whatever they want with it before it. Now, some scientists were announcing happily, ah, you see, that anomaly went away. When we fixed it, we just had to do it a little better. But I looked at that, and I looked at it carefully, and I said, that's a lot of bull. What they did was they applied, and I have to say in my opinion, but I'm very clear on this. What they did was <laughs> yeah. apply high, they applied high-compression algorithms to smooth out the data. And you can smooth out the Rocky Mountains in a picture if you put enough high-compression algorithm on it. And, and in the video, I go through the evidence of the high-compression algorithms that were used. Because you get large patches of area down where that anomaly is that have absolutely no gradation of color, of shades of gray, for example. And yeah. it's all and the, and that the the no the the flatness of the image exactly follows pixel lines. So that's exactly what happens when you take any image and you compress it enough. What you're doing is you're getting rid of the the color variation. Now in a raw image where you don't have much compression, every pixel has its own color value or its own temperature value or its own you know grayscale value or whatever. So you get a tremendous amount of detail. But those files are really large. And so compression is a fact of life that we have to have some element of compression, especially when you're dealing with Google Earth stuff. But if you do too much, especially in certain areas, you flatten it. And so yeah. I look at that and I just said, that's ridiculous. You know, nothing was fixed at all. They just compressed the thing away. And so I looked at the early and then I looked at the late and I said, this is yet more evidence that now I am not saying I am not N O T. I am not saying that any scientist or oceanographer or whatever corrupted the Google Earth data in order to pull the wool over humanity. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that these data are government data originally, and the government can do anything they want with the data. And for me personally, 
They can do anything they want with the data before even anybody else gets a hold of it. And for me personally, the story about ship tracks, which was completely abandoned after Google Earth 2.0 came about as if it never had happened because the ship track story was so stupid. It's like calling yeah. a UFO swamp, swamp gas. And so as soon as Google Earth 2.0 came about and they said, see, we got rid of the anomaly, you didn't hear anything more about ship tracks. And now you heard yeah. about them fixing things. Well, if I didn't believe the ship tracks thing and that story was abandoned, why should I believe their second story? And, you know, <laughs> what will happen when the next, when the next yeah. story comes out? So the I'm just saying version. for me personally, yeah. For me personally, I didn't believe any of that stuff. Now, to give you an idea of how serious this, this element is, this problem is, we did another project on uh, an alien base on Mars, and that's available for free on our website as well, in our projects. And if you go to that on, on the nav bar, base on Mars, it was based on a very clear set of pictures, very clear, of a spray coming out of a nozzle that was connected to a pipeline that was leading to a dome. And the spray has a shadow under it and everything. I mean, it's as clear as day. It's totally unambiguous. And so we wanted to know what that thing was. Well, uh, we did a remote viewing project on it. We have very clear imagery of it supplied by NASA and its partners. And so we found out what it was. And in fact, it is a, a currently occupied base on Mars that is being occupied by people. There are humans like us that are not the original builders, meaning the people who built the thing have left long ago, and who's ever there now is trying to, they're running into spare parts problems, uh, yeah, but they're trying to work with it. Okay, so we did that. Now, Google Earth has a Mars version. So if you Google, if you go to Google Earth and then click on yeah. View, Explore, Mars, you can do that. And if you put in the exact uh, location which is a special code coming out of the NASA JPL pictures. It's like M11-00099 or something like that. And it's on, and it's on our page that we have. If you go in, if you put that location in on the Google Earth Mars thing and just hit the enter button, it will fly you to that location. And that spot with the anomalous image has been censored. It's been smeared out. And it's yeah. very clear. It's not ambiguous. And I have a picture of the Google Earth imagery on our web page so you can see the censoring. Yeah. So, you see, you see um, it's, it's not and – you, and you can't say that it was a technological glitch cause they, and they didn't have the picture because well, they, they know the original yeah. picture. We have yeah. the original picture. We show it on our website. There it is. Yeah. And so you, you can't say that the glitch is a technical glitch. We have the original. But the original, you have to get, it's buried inside a NASA uh, website. Uh, yeah. Google Earth is something that 7 billion people can easily get to. So that's where the censoring happens. So, you know, the idea of censoring is, is, is uh, I mean, I love Google and I love Google Earth. I mean, I think it's wonderful. Uh, but, you know, they yeah. live in a world with a, with a government just like us. And if somebody comes along and uh, the government comes along and says, you know, you have to do something because something for X, Y, Z purposes, you know, they are in no position to say no. I yeah. mean, they, so they have to, I mean, that ha I've, I've you're, you're one of, uh, you're, you're one of, uh, a number of, um, researchers, who, researchers, including myself, who have seen early versions of satellite imagery that was placed on Google Earth and then 
as those areas heated up, there were more people making claims about uh, anomalous uh, images and, and uh, uh, ground archaeology. Then they all of a sudden are gone in an updated version. So this has been going on for years. And yeah, I, I think it's, know, it's, it's, it's a waste of time that they do that. It's well, just but a waste you have to understand. There is so much data out there. It's very hard to police all of it. So there's a yeah. lot of stuff that squeaks through. And and with 7 billion people on the planet, people find it. Now, yeah. but understand, I, I am a great lover of Google and Google Earth and everything. So, so uh, you know, I'm not criticizing them. If, yeah. you know, the, the, the government is allowing the Farsight Institute to do these projects. There's mm -hmm. no question about it. They could right. close us down in a second. They could close down Google or any company in a second if they wanted to. So the only reason we're able to, so, you, you know, companies don't have complete impunity to do whatever they want. So the, the only reason we are able to do what we want is to do what we're doing is because somebody in the government has made a decision that it's time for this information, this type of information to come exactly. out. Exactly. Yeah. And so they're allowing us, I mean, we've had the, the military guys on our board of directors, for heaven's sake. I mean, we're not a secret organization that the government has to try to monitor. I mean, we're an open book. So, right. you know, it, it, the very fact that we and the proof of this was our big project on nine on the nine eleven events. When okay. we did the nine eleven events, that was the big test because as soon as I revealed what the project was to the viewers. The first thing yeah. they said was, "Are we going to?" The first thing they said was, "Are we going to be allowed to publish this thing?" And that was the test, and we were allowed. There was no interference whatsoever. So, right. you know, there is a lot of people. There are people in the intelligence. Remember, the intelligence people mm -hmm. are they're they're American citizens. They're human beings on the planet. They sure. have spouses and kids, just like everybody else, and. They care about the future of the planet. They may have some of them may have different visions for how the future of the planet should be um, cared for, but they are concerned about the future just as much as we are. And a good portion of them, you know, must think that what we're doing is important. Otherwise, we would have been stopped. Right. Let's go on to um, let's let's talk about Cydonia in the time we have left. I want to talk about Cydonia and then this, uh, this uh, moon on um, a Saturn that you guys have done work with. Um, yeah. The, 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 uh, the remote viewing that you did of the Cydonia region, we, we've had a couple of scientists on here. We had uh, Dr. John Brandenburg, who wrote a book about the actual civilization on Mars based on his discovery of two nuclear detonations in the Sidonia region. What, what did, what did you guys Cliff, find? Cliff, let me, Cliff, let me interrupt. Uh, when yeah. did you have John Brandenburg on? He was on a couple of, uh, he was about a, a month ago. Oh, okay. That's great. Because his recent book, Death on Mars is to die for. I mean, it's a great yeah, book. Well, that's the and, book we were promoting. Yeah. yeah. He's a, he's a uh, nuclear physicist who worked in the Scandia labs. Yes, and the he's a, he's also you might you might call a nuclear forensic physicist in the sense. Oh, that what he, he goes, uncovered he, was amazing. It was totally amazing. Yeah, it, it, for for people who are willing to have an open mind and look at the data, it's absolutely unambiguous that there was a fission nuclear explosion on Mars, 
And yeah. uh, when th- th- this actually, when it happened, that was the end of the atmosphere on Mars. That was when yeah. life became on Mars became uninhabitable. But long before that, there was a vibrant civilization on Mars, and there was also another planet nearby that we can call Maldek, for lack of a better word. And that planet exploded. And I'm assuming, although I don't have any direct data on this, I'm assuming it exploded as an act of war. And I'm also assuming that there's a good possibility that Mars is a moon of that planet. Now, we know that because Mars is heavily cratered on one side of it. One side of it is very heavily cratered. And the other side has no craters. The cratered side also is about a kilometer up to three kilometers thicker than the uncratered side, which means whatever exploded hit Mars like a, gun, like a shotgun blast and cratered and heavily covered one side of Mars. And that means it must have been very close to Mars. So having Mars as a moon of that other planet makes sort of sense. Now, that other planet, we did a whole project called the uh, Exploding Planet project and that was basically the origin of the asteroid belt so the astro our whole history of the solar system really needs heavy revision but the exploding planet idea has tremendous amount of support from planetary data and that was data that was accumulated by a guy called thomas van flandern a very mainstream astronomer Yeah. yeah now thomas van flandern was head of his department of celestial mechanics for many years at the naval observatory and he amassed an enormous amount of data that clearly indicated that there was a planet, for whatever reason, it exploded, and that the mainstream approach or the mainstream theory of how the asteroid belt came about was what, is that it was junk or refuge, refuse left over from the original primordial solar nebula, yeah. that that theory is just simply stupid. Now, the reason you can say it's really stupid, there's not a shred of evidence to support it. All the evidence supports the idea that there was a planet that exploded. Now, now Thomas Van Flandern's books, is, he's the, he, that's where you go to get the list of evidence all nicely organized. But let me just give you a couple biggies. The asteroids are big rocks, like series asteroids. They're huge, and they're rocks. Rocks don't form from the primordial solar nebula. That's dust. Dust doesn't produce a heavy, solid rock. If you don't get a rock by having dust bounce around. To get a rock, you have to have a gravity well. You have to have a gravity source that pulls all the dust together and then compresses the dust into a solid rock. That's how you make a rock. And so the idea that it came out of the primordial solar nebula is just plain stupid. Secondly, the surface of the asteroids have very clear evidence of having been exposed to a glazing extreme heat. So whatever happened melted the surface of them. So what we have is very clear data that there was a planet there. It did explode. It was a tremendously hot event. It shattered one half of, you know, one half of Mars. It covered with rocks and craters and everything like that. That was a bad day on Mars. But it wasn't the end because like sometime later, I don't know how exactly how long, maybe a hundred thousand years, the nuclear fission explosion happened. So it may yeah. have it may have it may have wiped out civilization on Mars, but mm-hmm. nature finds a way to bounce back. Somehow people got their stuff together 
enough to have a nuclear explosion. And that nuclear explosion was the end of of you know the ability of Mars to house a plant, house a civilization because that blew up okay. the rest of the atmosphere. Now, can you tell a, a little project, bit? Yeah, tell us a little bit about the people. That, 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 yeah, if you could focus Cid- on the people. Yeah, that'd yeah. be great. The Cido- the Cydonia project, uh, remote viewing Cydonia Mars, which is available. You can go to the website farside.org and see it now. The Cydonia that was before the exploding planet. That was not during the time of the fission thing. And so what happened was there was people. Now, Cliff, this is important. They were us. They were they looked just like us. They acted just like us. They had their They're humanoid. The, humanoid humanoid. No, they look like you and me, exactly. You can't tell oh, the difference. Okay. Okay. Exactly like us. They're not like mm. sort of humanoid with arms and legs. They, if you were walking around there, you would have thought they were. You would have noticed that you were in some other other place, but you would have said this must be what is this Cincinnati or something? I mean, so anyway, the the Cydonia region. It, we have no evidence that it was a face, a face on Mars, but it, it it's like three kilometers from corner to corner. It was a city, like an island city, surrounded by water, and they had poor shantytown area. They had a, a middle-class area, and they had a really rich area. And they also had an incredibly good subway system. We don't have we don't have a lot of we don't have evidence of them flying around in like uh, aircraft, like jets and stuff like that. What the transportation system that seems to have been dominant on Mars was the subway system. Now, there's lots of good NASA photos of the subways that have been exposed. Yeah, uh, they call them the tubes on Mars. But the remote viewing data, under totally blind conditions, went into the Cydonia face on Mars area and also noticed the subway system went down and explored the whole thing. So it was, uh, they were really, really, really fast and modern trains. I mean, really fast. And, you know, it's like our maglev trains. Like, they, they were really... And, you know, the Martian atmosphere was never very thick. So the idea of sending things around with jet aircraft doesn't make as much sense as subway systems with fast trains. So, mm-hmm. you know, you need a thick atmosphere to carry jets and stuff like that. So, you know, basically what happened was was when that other planet exploded, there was inundation that occurred. The that's when the subway system flood, flooded, the tidal waves occurred, that's what brought it to an end. So, if mm-hmm. you went back to the Cydonia region right now, you would find no people there, but you would find ruins. And you would find a subway system underneath it. And one of the remote viewers compared it to what would happen in the end of the world type setting if you went to New York and went into the subway system a thousand years from now. Well, you'd uh-huh. still find it, but it would be a wreck. Well, that's what yeah, it looks like. Yeah. That's what it looks like now underneath that. So, but, and we, one of the reasons we know that they were very much like us is when you remote view extraterrestrials, very often, they can tell you're remote viewing them and they turn in the direction of the remote viewer, wherever that remote viewer's focus of ascension is, and stare at you. And as they often start up a conversation. They point at you <laughs> and things. That we, have, we have lots of examples like that. In fact, something big like that is coming in our next project, which is, okay. which is uh, the, the Phoenix Lights, and that'll be coming out in July. Okay, well, let me ask is, you this. The, let me ask you this. This is something you just brought up. You said they were very much like us. Is there a connection between Earth humans and uh, the humanoids of Mars? Yeah. 
that's a good point. Because you see, we know they were like us because when we were remote viewing them, they didn't, they didn't, they they had no idea we were remote viewing them. They acted just like humans, and that's what humans are like. Now, when Mars went belly up, they those, those people had to go. Some of them could have gone on ships. We have very clear evidence that they had interplanetary travel, not with chemical rockets, but with like UFO technology that was fast and so on. But they could not have gotten everybody off. So most of everybody simply died. Now, when you die, you have to ask, what are you going to do? So are you going to jump star systems and be born into another civilization on another, on another star system or another galaxy? Well, that's not the most likely thing. Mostly you're going to go to a nearby planet. You'll start over again nearby. And Earth was the place that was next. And so some of them came with ships, relatively few of them. But you can assume that the rest came just by being born here. And eventually there became 7 billion of us here. So, you know, they had to leave. They had to leave. They had to leave Maldek and they had to leave Mars. And so I like to look at the Martians as us when we were there. What would you say the approximate time would be for them to evacuate Mars and come to Earth? The last, actually, the best person, you know, that's very hard to get that from remote viewing data. So we have to piece it together with other stuff. The best Uh person to ask for that question is actually John Brandenburg. Because he has solid data on when the nuclear explosion happened. When well, that's scary because his, his dates are a quarter billion years ago. A quarter billion years ago. That's just my uh, for the, for the Actually, I remember him saying stuff that was, I remember, if I remember clearly in one of his books, is that the nuclear explosion happened much more recently. Um, mm, no, and then also was... with uh, with respect to, when the plant when the planet exploded uh thomas van flandern's data suggested that the planet exploded in the much more recent history so you're talking more like a span of 10 million years for all okay. of this to have occurred all right. so you know some some of these some of these scientists are still trying to piece together details like that but the the people to read are john brandenburg and also the books by thomas van flandern in order to look at the evidence yourself to figure out when the dating occurs. For example, when I talked about the Atlantis project and you asked me when it happened, how did I get to 70,000 years? Well, first, we look at what the actual events were, and then we look at the dating that other scientists have for those types of things, like the big explosion that happened. And the big explosion and the genetic evidence clearly points to the Toba Kadashpi theory concept that happened in... 70,000 years ago. So that's how we got, that was the explosion that happened at that, in that location at that time. And that matched what we were seeing with our remote viewing data. So we put a date on that. It was a unique event that was very clear having those characteristics and the, and the mainstream scientists are saying 70,000 years for that event. So we're saying that's good for us. It sounds right. Okay. Okay. For the the dating, for the dating, really look towards other people to get the exact dating. Okay. So let's let's finish up with a special project that you have uh, a great deal of interest in, and that's the uh, Iepetus moon on uh, one of the Saturn moons, and apparently NASA, one of the NASA space probes, took some imaging of the surface of this uh, of this moon and detected an artificial dome of some type. Why don't you go ahead and tell us what you've discovered about this and why you're well, interested the, in it. The, 
The space probe is called the Cassini space probe. And mm-hmm. it was launched. It's still there around orbiting Saturn, taking pictures of all types of stuff. And it was launched to study Saturn and its moons. And one of the pictures that it sent back is a very clear thing on the side of a crater that looks to me like a, a set of buildings. Uh, it has a what looks like a, a huge set of steps that come out of the buildings. I don't think they were steps. They're too big to be steps, but they have that exact uh, topography. They, they, it's exactly what they look like. You, you'd say that you know, it's a regular set of steps. And, and the buildings themselves have smooth sides, and on the top of them they have a circular roof, and they're parallel. They have a multiple, a view, a few of them that have the exact same shape, and that just doesn't happen when you throw a meteor at a moon and produce a crater. You don't get steps and smooth sides and so on. So I looked at that, and there was some internet chatter about that that I thought was interesting. I saw many years ago, and I said, "Well, if I ever get the opportunity to send the best remote viewers on the planet to there to find out what the heck that is, I'll do it." So I, I saved that. <laughs> And okay. eventually I had a chance to send Dick Algeyer and Dad Smith under totally blind conditions, recorded live on video, to explore what that is. And they found out. Now, Cliff, the thing that was so amazing, I know we're running out of time, so let me just really hit to the, get to the chase. That video was just released like a week and a half ago. Uh, people can see it right now at our farsight, website, farsight.org. But let me tell you, that was a, a real one of the most amazing things, you have to see it to believe it, to understand it, because that was not a military facility. That was not an industrial facility. That was not, an, that was not a spy base or a, milita- or a mining facility. That was a place that was built by one of the richest persons on, in the solar system before Maldek exploded, before the end of Mars civilization. There was somebody that was richer than Bill Gates, richer than Warren Buffett, richer than Richard Branson. And that guy built a facility on probably the most beautiful spot in the solar system, on an icy barren moon of Saturn, on Iapetus, right underneath the rings of Saturn, and a perfectly unfettered sky with all the stars, with Saturn right next by. You can't imagine a more beautiful location. And he built basically a, hol- a holiday health spa resort hotel. And people went there, the elite of the elite, to commune, to have a spiritual experience under the rings of Saturn. Obviously, they weren't using chemical rockets to get there. They're using obvious you know, ships like UFO type stuff where you get there in an hour or two. And they went there and they had you know, that type of health spa spiritual experience. It was an unusual thing. And then there was a war in the solar system. And I'm assuming it's connected to the same exploding planet, the end of Cydonia, the whole that stuff. And when that war happened, there was no place for those people to go because they weren't growing any food. Everything had to be shipped in. And that's when it died. They were abandoned and they had no place to go. And if we went there today and walked through the facility... Some of the power generators and things like that are in standby mode. They're shut down, but they're in standby mode, still generating a little. But we would probably see, I don't think a cleanup crew has been sent, so we would see the bones of the people who died there. Mm -hmm. Uh, They ran out of food. They ran out of water. They ran out of air. Um, 
we would see them as they died. What's because a, they had nowhere what's to a, go. Yeah, what's a plus-minus date potential on that? It's all tied to the same thing. When the planet, it, it looks like, we don't have an exact date on that, but where the war seems to be the signature element in the solar system when that planet exploded. And so when the planet exploded, that's when Cydonia went up, that's when, it, that's when Cydonia ended. And um, the best place, the best person to get that dating from is Thomas Van Flandern, because he has okay. a book. I don't have it right in front of me, and I didn't sure. know it would be asked that. Otherwise, I would have got the book and pinged out. No, I, I'm I just believe, curious. I, I believe he's talking a date of like 10 million years, but it's, it's, in, the, it's in his books, his most recent book. He's, he's dead now, but he's, he left yeah. uh, a large legacy of published work, and that and the, his most recent book on that covers that material does have a dating on that, and he has a variety of different ways to determine when the dating occurred, and he goes through that. It's very fascinating stuff. Okay, but it so wasn't, in it the, wasn't too too long ago. It wasn't too long okay. ago. Well, ten million years is a lot, <laughs> but it's I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's longer it, than we we'll live. It, yeah. Yeah, in, in cosmic terms, it's nothing. It's a blink of an eye. In cosmic planet-building yeah. terms. Um, in, in the few minutes we have left, um, uh, I have a couple questions for you. Uh, the, probably the most important for me is when, when, does, when does the government come clean with this material? When, when, because the more sophisticated our society becomes, the Internet – uh, scanning devices, observing devices, telescopes, whatever. I mean, there's 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 thousands of websites that are dedicated to anomalies on Mars, and the refinements not of not just using the software like Photoshop, but just the refinements of just observable uh, anomalies, structures, buildings, ruins that have been destroyed, statues. It's all very obvious that there's these are actual items when when do we does nasa say okay we fess up this has been here and <laughs> because it's okay. ridiculous well i mean it's, it's clear. Just, yeah the government the government is already co totally coming clean with all of this and uh, let me explain how that's happening the, the decision was made to no longer suppress or disrupt the information when it's coming out People were very old and on their deathbeds are now allowed to speak. They're now allowed to publish what they've done. So all types of information is now coming out by people who are old. People like us at the Varsade Institute are no longer being disrupted. The UFO groups in the early days, in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the USO, UFO groups are all systematically disrupted so that they would not gain a large, a large audience. And so all of that has stopped, to my understanding. So what's happening now is the government is letting all those people who are ready, who are capable of understanding it and accepting it, they're letting those people get the information and listen to it, which is why I'm on your show, which is why we have been able to do all of our projects, which is why we're not interrupted. And everybody else is allowed to live in their own fantasy world, meaning the, the government is not coming to the public and slapping them in the face and saying, wake up, you stupid jerk. Don't you see what's been going on? They're letting those people that don't want to see this reality stay in their fantasy world. And they're letting okay. the people who do want to say it 
who do want to see it, they're letting that information out so that they have access to it. So the key is not the government forcing it, but the government allowing the information out so that those who are ready for it can see it. Okay, and not blocking it so much, even though they still disrupt. They're not blocking it. Yeah, they still disrupt uh, uh, Google Earth a bit, but other than that. Well, yeah, they have, there are still some, but those are really minor. In the old days, it was a very major cover-up, but what's going on now is extremely minor, and the, 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 the difference between now and what happened in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s is just night and day. So in yeah. a way, you, you get a very positive answer. The government is coming clean now, but it's not, it's not being active in forcing people who are not ready for it to accept this reality. It's, but Understood. it's not stopping people from seeing it if they're ready for it. Okay. Very good. Listen, uh, this has been great. My guest today has been Dr. Courtney Brown of the Farsight Institute, his website. By the way, I really encourage everyone to go to Farsight, F-A-R-S-I-G-H-T dot org and look at some of these videos. He's got a couple that are, I think the one on Atlantis is completely uh, free. Is that correct? I think that one is a complimentary, the complimentary video. Yeah, ninety percent of everything, or ninety-eight percent of everything on the website is free, including a over twenty hours of instructional material hosted by YouTube on remote viewing procedures. I mean, free text, everything. But and most Good. of our projects are free. But there's a, a some of the recent projects have had to be presented in a formal video type documentary settings right. hosted by Vimeo or DVD, and those right. those we ask people to buy to see the whole thing because we had. No real viable other way to present people present that type of stuff. These new projects yeah. are totally video projects, and so we had to present yeah. them in a proper theatrical method. No, I mean the the your offering is very professional. Everything is very well done, very well edited, and I encourage everyone to go go check a look, take a look at it. Before I let you go, Courtney, is there anything you want to like to tell our audience? Any books that are coming up? Yeah. Any places that you'll be speaking well, at? Would, uh, Go ahead. I would like to say I would like to say one thing that it's very important. We're a nonprofit and we do not advertise. So the only way we have to get information to our people is with things like our our free newsletter. So when you come to the website before you leave, click on that subscribe button, put the email address in. We never ever give out the email addresses for any reason whatsoever to anybody else and we only have a weekly newsletter that comes out. And if you do go to our YouTube channel, then subscribe to that as well. But the point is that uh, you taking the initiative to subscribe to our our newsletter, which is where you'll find out about the YouTube channel as well, that's, if you don't subscribe to our YouTube channel, you won't ever hear about us. I mean, if you don't subscribe to our newsletter, you won't ever hear about us because we don't have any advertising to put it in your face. So when you go okay. to the website, click on subscribe to our newsletter. It's free. It goes out once a week. No spam. And then you're connected. Wow. Fantastic. All right. Well, uh, thanks again. I will be posting um, some photographs, a link to your uh, Farsight Institute, and some more information on some of the uh, um, items that I thought thought were interesting. And much good luck and success to you. And um, perhaps we'll have you on again, Courtney. Well, I want to thank you so much, Cliff. It's been a real joy. And uh, you really are a 
professional interview. It was a really, really pro job and a, a really nice uh, 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 conversation. So thanks. Yeah, it was fun for me too. That interview was surprisingly on the mark and remains fairly clear even today. There's, uh, I'd say, most of the material that he talked about, what was remote viewed, is right up to date. So he may, you know, it's funny, even though that's like four or five, excuse me, six years ago, the data is is still contemporary. It's still stuff we're working on. I mean, probing into the Antarctica to look for material, this has been highlighted and, and reported by a number of different people and agencies. And so, I mean, he uh, he and his team actually are right on. So, oh boy, uh, I need to get him back on the program. That's a while ago. And um, I was like looking at Farsight on uh, YouTube and it's still filled with tons of stuff. So go to YouTube, go to Farsight, check it out, or go to farsightinstitute.org, O-R-G, check it out, and see what you think. See what you think. Uh, you know, I mean, his take on everyone being psychic is a good one. The issue is, who's who's got the psychic ability to, be, uh, to actually be a remote viewer? You really got to know your stuff. So, anyhow, fun concept. Hey, we got tours coming up in 2023, and our newest tour, the Ancient Maya of Chiapas, has just been announced. It's going to be November 10th through the 17th, about a year from now. And we fly into Verahamosa. Rather than flying into the uh, Mexico City, we're going to fly into little Verahamosa. If you're in the United States, it's not a big deal. If you're in your, if you're in Europe, you're probably going to start from wherever you're located. And fly into Mexico City, wait an hour or two, and then fly to Verahomosa. Verahomosa is the heart of Olmec land. We'll check out the Olmec museums. We'll go to La Venta, one of the largest Olmec parks in the world, and uh, enjoy that, have a nice lunch. Then we get on a bus and we head to Palenque. One of the great parts of this tour is our host and lead archaeologist is Dr. Edwin Barnard. He cut his teeth with Linda Sheely at Palenque, and he did a tremendous amount of surveying there. We will get an up-close-and-personal look at Palenque from his eyes, as well as the ability to climb on pyramids, temples, and other buildings, which you really can't do in a lot of places in Mexico. Uh, so we'll be in Palenque, and then we're going to go see a few other places. This is a shorter tour, one week, 10th to the 17th, seven days, and it is a beauty. For more information, go to earthancients.com forward slash tours, T-O-U-R-S. Check the uh, logo and come out and join us. You'll love it. It's a, it's a great, great uh, chance to get out, connect with pyramids, connect with the, uh, the Maya, and also hear from an archaeologist that actually excavated the place. Palenque in Chiapas, Mexico. earthancients.com forward slash tours. All right, that's it for our program today. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Courtney Brown from the Farsight Institute and uh, the team of Ruth Thomas, Mark Foster, and everyone who makes destiny happen. You guys are rockers. 
All right, take care, be well, and we'll talk to you next time.